You guys believe that, right? God is good? God is love? Are we all together on that so far? Good, that's good. All right, glad to hear that. Hey, um, as we get started today looking into scripture, I want to uh, make a request of you. I don't do this very often, but I want to make a request just getting started. I'd like to ask that all of you uh, would grant me a presumption of goodwill and good faith as we walk through the next 30 minutes or so. <laughs> and I will give the same to you. Okay, it'll be, that'll be mutual. I want it. I want you to give me the presumption of goodwill and good faith because the topic we're about to enter into is going to require that of all of us. And so if you do that now, if you're, if you're a lakesider, that's probably not too big of a deal because we've been together for a while and you sort of know me and, and sort of have, I have probably got some goodwill built up mostly, right? If you're a guest today, you're like, who is this dude and why should I give him my goodwill? It's like, you, you don't have to, I'm just asking, it's just a request, okay? And you can, you can take it back later on if you want to. Okay, just, just so we know where we're heading with this, all right? I would appreciate being able to do that. I want to go back to that song for a minute, and I want you to think about uh, this, this concept or this question. It's actually more of an issue than a question. If you have ever looked at some other person or some other category or group of people and thought that they might not be eligible for the kingdom of heaven you may have a problem of arrogance in your faith. If you've ever looked at somebody else and thought, oh, there's no way that God would accept them, there's no way that God would love them, you may have a, an arrogance problem in your faith. So we're um, spending some time these days and this month and a little bit in the next month, we're talking about uh, myths that we love to believe. And it's kind of an interesting challenge for a preacher to stand up and say, here's our series, Myths We Love to Believe, when as soon as you hear that, you're like, well, I don't believe any myths. I mean, how many of you think you believe myths? Oh, a couple of you, you know. I'm figuring, I probably do, but I don't know about it, because if I knew it was a myth, I'd change. I'd change my faith, but we come to it and go, oh, the things that I believe, they're not myths. And here I come in going, hey, the things we're going to talk about this month are myths we love to believe. And you might be willing to say that the person down the row from you believes in myths, because look at them, but, but not you, not me. I mean, we're, we're way smarter than to believe in myths, but we're going to go continue in that series today, and uh, we come today to myth number three, and uh, these are not in any pr pr particular logical order, just kind of the way we laid them out in the series, but here's myth number three. God likes my party better. Yeah? I mean, don't you think some people believe that? Some, some of us, maybe not us in the room, but sometimes you got people in this world and we live our lives like God likes my party better. Or another way to say it, God is on my side. Or another way to say it, I am on God's side all the time. And people that don't line up with me are obviously not lined up with God. Or God likes my party better. We're in a very interesting time these days, uh, this weekend even, and, and, and this week and the next week and a half or so, my, my, uh, my mailbox keeps getting filled up with glossy cardstock. Yeah, thank you. I mean, right? I'm not a big fan of the political season because I'm always getting this stuff in the mail, and they're giving me all the reasons why they're the party of God. They don't say it that way, 
But, you know, that's, that's what they want me to buy into, right? Is they, they fill my mailbox up. We're on Memorial Day weekend. You know, we're, we're in a um, highly patriotic um, moment in our, in our nation's calendar. And we remember people who have given their lives for the rest of us. Pretty remarkable thing. Uh, a very more remarkable thing that other people have done for their country. It's amazing to me. And I honor that today. We honor that this weekend, of course. But in the process of that, we have this really messy political system where we end up choosing sides and, and, and uh, in the side that we're on, we end up saying sort of like, well, you know, God is on my side and God likes my party best. In, 19, in uh, June of 1979, Jerry Falwell and Paul Weyrich started a new kind of social movement. They named it the Moral Majority. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you are old enough to have read about it in your history books, right? <laughs> the Moral Majority was kind of a fresh wind in political movements in the United States because up until that time, conservative religious people had pretty much backed away from politics. They said, you know, the, the Christians don't belong in politics. We ought to keep our nose out of it. It's a messy business, and so we ought to just back up and stay away from that. And when the Moral Majority began, it sort of led this whole group of Christians into the political world, which was a good thing. And we ought, we ought to be engaged in political life. We ought, to be, we ought to be engaged in political discourse as followers of Jesus. He left us here to influence the world. So it was a new thing. It was a fresh thing. And, and in many ways, it was a really good thing. Moral Majority lasted for 10 years as an organization. It disbanded in 1989. And in the course of those 10 years, in that decade of the 80s, a lot of Christians sort of began to get into politics. And a lot of them migrated to the Republican Party, which became sort of the party of the moral majority. And a lot of them began to see the Republican Party as the party of Jesus. The Democrats didn't really see it that way, but the, but the Republicans, many of them did. Traditionally, historically, and even today, the Republican Party promotes personal responsibility. The reason Republicans are opposed to Obamacare and opposed to higher taxes is because they're opposed to more government because they believe in personal responsibility. They, they think people ought to be responsible with their own choices, their own finances, their own things. And it is never wrong to encourage someone else to take personal responsibility. It is never wrong. And that's one of the high values of the, Republic, of the Republican Party. That's a good thing. However, in the midst of, those, of that decade when moral majority was um, leading the charge for many conservative people and many conservative Christians, inadvertently, I believe, inadvertently, they sort of led the way to us believing, or many people believing, that there are only really two sins in the world. The two sins that, that kind of got really uh, talked about a lot in the 80s and, and under the leadership of moral majority were homosexuality and abortion. And all the other sins sort of got left off the side. And that created damage in our culture. It created damage in our national culture. It created damage in our church culture. For at least two reasons. Number one, because it, less, it left us off the hook who have not been involved in homosexuality or abortion. When in my life, I don't have any same-sex attraction. I don't, under, I don't understand that. It's not a part of my makeup at all. Uh, but I'm off the hook. 
there's only two sins. That's, only, that's one of them. I'm off the hook for that. And I've never been involved in an abortion, never been in a relationship where that happened. And so I'm off the hook for that one too. If there's only two sins, I'm righteous. Yeah, but we stop talking about greed and lust of other kinds and anger and hatred and bigotry and all kinds of other things that are also sins. And it created damage for us. And it led to the second area of damage, which I believe uh, was we developed a spiritually driven political arrogance. That's a disease we are still trying to get over today. Spiritually driven political arrogance. The Democratic Party today has many people that believe that they are now on the side of God, much more than the Republicans are. And maybe they wouldn't say it that way, but that it's like we're the party of choice. We're the part, we're the party that's doing good. The Democratic Party promotes some things very strongly like a healthy management of the climate, of the environment. They promote taking care of those, watching out for those who are poor and vulnerable. The Democratic Party, by and large, tends not to talk about personal responsibility, but societal responsibility. They're saying as a society, it's our responsibility to look out for those who are vulnerable, whether that's human beings or whether that's the environment. And it is never wrong to promote and encourage social responsibility. But we end up in this world where we have people on both sides, in both major parties, where we go, my party is the party of God. My party is the party that God likes better. We probably wouldn't say it out loud. We're not, we're not that arrogant, although some of us might. We don't say, oh, God likes my party better, or I'm on God's side, or God is always on my side. We don't really say that out loud, but we live like that. Many of us, we live like that every day, and we so tend to cluster with people of our own worldview, people who see it like us because they're the in group. They're the right crowd. We cluster with them, and it makes sense because if you believe something with conviction, with passion, and you believe that what you believe is true and truth, it makes sense that you might become arrogant about that because you have this firm, such strong, passionate conviction. It's not hard to understand. But the kingdom of God is poorly served by political arrogance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave his seminal talk about what life in the kingdom of God looks like. When Jesus came into this world, he came to initiate God's kingdom in this world. The, the, the world had been in rebellion against God for thousands of years, and Jesus came to re-engage the kingdom of God in this world. And when he left, he left us to live out the kingdom principles of God in this world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus set up his his seminal, his, his seed-planting talk 
about how do we as his followers live in this kingdom, this worldly kingdom with heavenly values? How do we do it? I want to take a few minutes and just read through some of the parts that Jesus talked about in his Sermon on the Mount and see if we could let his words shape our approach to life in this world as those who are followers of Jesus in, re- in our relationships and even in our politics. Is it possible? If you have your Bible, pull it out and turn to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon in the, on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I just want to read a few passages from the Sermon on the Mount, a couple others, but let me start with uh, the beginning of the sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Here's how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing he tells us is that the kingdom of God is served by political humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a name for the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is served by political humility. Political humility makes a couple of observations about the world, makes, takes, makes a couple of acknowledgments about life in this world for those who follow Jesus. First acknowledgement that political humility makes is this. No one party can contain the kingdom of God. No one party can possess the kingdom of God. Now that just makes sense right off the bat because you go, if a political party could contain the kingdom of God, then the political party is bigger than the kingdom of God. That's impossible. There is nothing bigger than the kingdom of God. No one political party can contain or possess the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 7, also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this statement, verse 1. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We are so quick to judge those who see it differently than we. We are so quick to say to somebody else of a a different political persuasion, oh, you got something in your eye. 
you're kind of messed up there. You got something in your eye. Let me take it out. And Jesus says, yeah, but you got a plank in your own eye. You can't see clearly to help somebody else with a speck in their eye. We tend to judge others real quickly about what they believe and what they stand for, but we don't judge ourselves the same way. We think because they're outside of our party, they're outside of God's kingdom. Jesus says, no, you know, we all have a little something in our eye. We even do this in church sometimes. We saw this when we were going through our series in 1 Corinthians a few months ago. We came to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the apostle Paul said this in verse 11. He said, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, and still another, well, I follow Christ. He says, stop being arrogant regarding who your leader is. That's not what the kingdom of God is made of. It's unbecoming to those who live as citizens of God's kingdom. No party, no one party can contain the kingdom of heaven. Second thing that political humility acknowledges is that power is not the catalyst of God's kingdom. Power is not the thing that drives God's kingdom. It's really interesting because we look at God and we go, oh, God is almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, all the big stuff about God. We go, oh, we love that stuff. We love the power stuff about God. But God's kingdom is not driven by power. Power is not the catalyst of God's kingdom. Power is not the aspiration of God's kingdom. Power is not the mode of operation of God's kingdom. Power is not the point. Love is. And we so quickly trade off love for power. Maybe because we understand power better. But it's a trade off in the wrong direction. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Still in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to us, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? When when someone slaps you on your right cheek, it's a power move. 
When someone slaps you with a lawsuit, it's a power move. And Jesus says, do not respond in kind. Because power is not the catalyst of the kingdom of God. When someone wants to force you to go one mile, don't respond in kind. That's a power move. In that generation, the nation of Israel was under the dominion, the domination of the Roman Empire. And so Roman soldiers lived in Israel and they occupied that nation. And by Roman law, a Roman soldier could come to anyone in the empire and say, I've got this heavy burden, I've got this heavy pack, I've got all my weapons, I've got all my gear. Here, you carry it. And they could legally force you to carry it one mile. It was a show of strength. It was a move of power. And sometimes Israelites resisted trying to show their own power. Jesus said, you know, when someone comes and wants to force you to go one mile, don't do a power move on them. That's not how the kingdom works. That's not how the kingdom moves forward. Instead, when they force you to go one mile, go two. What is that? That's meekness. That's mercy. That's being poor in spirit. That's political humility. And the Jews might have called it political humiliation. But it's only humiliation if you try and respond with power. It's humility if you say, I'll not only go one mile, I'll go with you too. And frankly, that political humility that responds to power with mercy is way more powerful than power. Jesus goes on, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, which comes from the Bible. And he said, you've also heard, you shall hate your enemy, which does not come from the Bible. But it came from their religious leaders who were bent on power to advance their position. He said, you've heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies sacrificially. Give yourself up for your enemy. Pray for your enemy who persecutes you. And it's interesting in our culture how much that's permeated our culture, except in the realm of politics. In the political world, we we divide our enemies from our friends by an aisle down the middle of a room. Our enemies in the world of politics are very clearly delineated. Probably in your life, you have very few people you say, oh, that's my enemy. Because we've learned that whole enemy thing's not really cool. It's really not the way we should function in this world. So maybe we've got people that are mad at us or we're mad at them. And maybe we don't speak to them. But you probably don't call them an enemy. But when it comes to the political world, we feel justified somehow in having enemies and hating them. It's the only place I have recognized where Christians feel justified in hating their enemies. Because surely God must hate them. Surely that's why we're busy hating them. Because God hates them. But Jesus was very clear God does not hate them. 
And he calls us not to hate them like the religious leaders in his day did. He calls to love them with great sacrifice. Can I ask you just to reflect on that for a minute? I don't know your heart. Some of you, it's like you don't have an issue with this at all, but some, maybe you do, and I just want to ask you to think about your own heart for a moment. In the political world, have you ever spoken evil or spoken hatred of a political enemy? Who sits in the White House or the State House or the City Hall? If you have spoken hatred toward a political enemy, you've not yet learned what it means to live life in God's kingdom. And I don't say that to you as a judge today because I understand the temptation of it. But when we speak with hatred toward the political party that is not our party, what we're saying is God likes my party better. What we're saying is it's okay to hate my enemy as long as they're in politics. And Jesus says, let's live to a different standard. Let's live to a different calling. Let's live by a different kingdom. Because that's how the game is played in this kingdom. But that's not how it's played in God's kingdom. I want you to meet a friend of mine this morning. He works in the political realm. And I want you to meet him so you can pray for him because it's hard, right? So, hey, Josh, come on up. You guys, would you welcome Josh Hoover, please? Josh is a legislative director who works in the uh, state assembly for a state assembly person. And uh, Josh, uh, Josh is a lakesider, follower of Christ. I want to just hear a little bit about your story, and I want you to tell us a little bit about what your world feels like. So let's just start with what your faith in Jesus is like, how how'd you begin in this journey of following Jesus? Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, my name's Josh. I, I actually uh, grew up in a Christian home, and my mom always made sure I was involved in a lot of church activities. Um, and as I got a little older and moved on to college, moved out of the house, uh, I had to decide if that was my parents' faith or if it was my faith. And um, after, you know, some questioning and some praying and thinking, I, I made that decision, and Today, I try to pursue that in, um, well, I tried to pursue that through college and today in my marriage and in the workforce, so. Awesome. So even in working in the capital, you try and live out your faith following Jesus. I do my best. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, tell us, what, what does a legislative director do? Well, basically, I work for a state assemblywoman, and my job is basically to help work with her to help develop new laws or changes to laws and convince the rest of the legislature and the governor to pass those and sign them. Um, Congress and the president get most of the media attention, but actually the California legislature passes hundreds of bills every year that, that affect California even more closely. Um, and I guess in a nutshell, my job is to uh, help pass the good laws and stop the bad ones, but that all depends on your perspective. So, 
Yeah, so that sounds, uh, it's a position of power, obviously. You're influencing the person you work for as well as other uh, lawmakers, right? And uh, in that, there's got to be some challenges to your faith that come. Describe that for us. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's kind of a crazy place. I think um, it doesn't really challenge my faith in God as much as it challenges my faith in people sometimes. Okay. Um, I, you know, a few months back, I was walking into the Capitol, and uh, the FBI was running through the halls, uh, raiding an office that was actually right down the hall from mine, a state senator's office that, uh, for some ethical and law violations. And uh, that's the second one in the last year, second FBI raid on the Capitol in the last year, and uh, kind of the third major scandal recently. And so you see things like that, and, you know, I start to question, why do I work here? Why, why, do, why did I choose the career that I chose? You know, maybe I should have studied business like my dad told me to. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then I realized that, you know, there's really, there's a lot of good people in that building uh, that, that, that don't make the news, um, trying to do good things. And I think the government in general needs those people, needs people who love God and love others. So, so when you say there's a lot of good people, what you mean is there's a lot of good people on your side of the, of the room? Yeah, um, <laughs> No, you know, it's funny. There's, there's definitely, I think there's great good people on both sides, but, but they're, um, you know, we don't really, it, it's funny how much we actually agree upon, but we only focus on the stuff we don't agree upon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you go far enough left, I always say you get right. So, I mean, it's, it's like a circle. Yeah. Sometimes, so. All right, cool. Um, we talk a lot here at Lakeside about our oikos, which is the Greek word for household or it kind of extended uh, sphere of influence, and we believe God has strategically placed each one of us in a particular group of people that he wants us to love and serve and care for, and your oikos at work would be, um, it would include people on both sides of the aisle, right? How have you learned to love and serve and care for those people, whether they're political friends or political enemies? Well, I definitely think that, you know, the easy thing to do is just to kind of go along with the, the lines that have already been drawn because, you know, it's pretty clear cut when you're at work. Um, but I try to take a little bit different approach. I really um, try to respect everyone and treat everyone equally regardless of uh, what political viewpoint they're representing or regardless of whether or not I agree with them. Um, you know, I meet with groups on a weekly basis uh, who say California should be doing this or California shouldn't be doing this. And sometimes I'm right there with them and sometimes I completely disagree with them. But I think the goal is I, I always try to have an open dialogue with them. And uh, I think that I am called to, to love people before I'm called to advocate for some political position. So, yeah. Awesome. Josh, thanks for what you do and thanks for sharing with, that, with us today. <clears throat> All right, so you know Josh a little bit. Would you, uh, would you remember to pray for him? His job is really, really challenging, and I would just love to have a whole church praying for Josh Hoover and the work that he's doing in our state capitol. That would be amazing. And, Josh, I want you to pray for all these people because they work in hard places too, and their oikos is not always filled with friendly people either, and, uh, and yet God calls us to live out his kingdom in this world. I'm going to give you one more thing before we wrap up today, and uh, uh, maybe just a little bit of an application uh, part to this whole concept and how do we do this, how do we live this out. 
the book of James, I believe, is written um, by the Apostle James as um, an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. The things, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, then you go to the book of James, you go, oh, it said that in the other place. It said that in Jesus' sermon. And it's like James just kind of expands on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And so let me read for you a passage out of James chapter 1, verse 19, that may help us just figure out how do I live this in my life? How do I live out political humility in my life? James 1, verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Political humility, like spiritual humility, calls for listening. Let me read it again with a little edit. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry... Because the politics of anger does not accomplish the righteousness that God desires. Politics is just a movement among people. Politics is simply the, the social conversation or, or legal conversation between people. And what God is saying, what James is saying is, the politics of anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires desires in our world of living in this world but living for the kingdom of heaven how do we live that out James says start by listening rather than getting angry being angry living in anger and find a way to love your neighbor and your enemy. In 2007, the last day of 2007, New Year's Eve 2007, I was at my brother's house down south, and he, he hosts, he used, I think, he, I think he has done away with his party, but he used to host this um, annual New Year's Eve party. And we'd get some of his friends together, they'd have, a, they'd have a bunco tournament, then they'd follow that with a pool tournament, the party would get over about four o'clock in the morning, you know, it was just long, drawn-out, wonderful thing, and uh, I don't get to go very often because I live up here, and I'm not usually down there right after Christmas or anything, but in 2007, I got to be there, so I went to my brother's New Year's Eve party, and he had some of his friends there, and there was one particular man there that I've known for a long time, good friend of my brother's, and he's very conservative in every way I can imagine, even politically and even spiritually, very conservative. And uh, we were moving into the 2008, which was going to be the election where um, Barack Obama was eventually elected our president. So that was the year we were going into, and the primary season was about to get launched and all that. And, and uh, so I thought, oh, this will be a fun conversation. <laughs> Probably about as smart as wading into this on a sermon on a Sunday morning. I don't know, but... Uh, I just I started talking to him about various candidates, the Republican candidates, and I got to the Democratic candidates. I'm just asking, you know, what's your opinion of what's, what's your opinion of Hillary, and what's your opinion of Barack Obama, who really wasn't all that well known yet, and those kinds of things. And I just started asking his opinion. It became really clear that if you weren't on his side, he didn't have anything good to think about you at all. Nothing. And so I, I finally, I just, I just decided I would ask him this question. I said, do you think it's possible for a Democrat to tell the truth? 
That's where the conversation was heading. Do you think it's possible for a Democrat to tell the truth? And he said without missing a beat, no. And now we're back to where we began today. Would you be willing to give me the presumption of goodwill and good faith? Loving our enemy at least calls us to give them the presumption of goodwill and good faith. And to find a way not to hate our enemy, but to love them. It takes huge spiritual humility. It takes huge political humility. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That has to begin in church. Father in heaven, I pray for us today to that goal that we would love our enemies that we would know that you are bigger than any one political party. That we would know that there may be some things that we believe that are really right, right in line with your heart. And there may also be some things that we believe that are not in line with your heart so much. Lord, would you, would you hear our prayer as we seek to humble ourselves before you and humble ourselves before others? It's really hard for us. So would you hear our prayer? I'm not asking you to humble us, Lord. I'm not asking you to make us humble. You asked us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you at the proper time. So, Lord, just hear our prayer as we seek to humble ourselves before you and before our neighbor and before our enemy. And you be exalted among us, please. We pray through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.